We are in the book of Philippians, working our way through the gospel, or the not the gospel, the epistle to the Philippians. In it bears the gospel. We're quite aware of that. We have spent a few weeks, this is our fifth week, looking in uh, Philippians, and we are working our way kind of slowly through the, the epistle uh, to the Philippians and understanding what Paul is trying to communicate to not only this church, but then to us as we are uh, readers of down the, down the centuries of time, as it still applies to us. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse number 19. I'm going to read number 18 with it, the, at least the last little bit of, of verse 18, and then go into verse number 19 and read down through verse 26. So if you'll join me, I'll read that, and if you follow along, and then we will pray and ask the Lord to bless it, and we'll get right into it. This is the word of the Lord, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God. Let us respond to it as such. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words. We thank you that... We have your divine message in our language, in our laps, on our phones, in our hearts, that we might know what you have spoken, ultimately, so that we might obey what you have told us, that we might honor and worship you as the God who created all things and is Lord of all the earth, who is the King, who is the ruler and the master, who has redeemed us. So as your servants as your children, we humbly bow before your word and we ask that you would speak to us through it, that you would show us what we ought to know, what we ought to do. May we be found obedient, faithful servants as we apply and and practice these things that you teach us. May we honor Christ in our obedience, in our listening, in our receiving of the word. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. If you're familiar with what we've been working our way up to in uh, the first 18 verses of Philippians, we spent quite a bit of time in in, uh, these, uh, spent an extra time for what you might not think 18 verses needs. But uh, as Paul is writing this from prison and, and, and communicating specific things to these Philippians, and last week we looked at Paul's perspective. That would have been a theme of last week 
uh, or the last passage there, the, the perspective that Paul had and how that shaped uh, his attitude towards prison, towards uh, those who would compete against him in the preaching and the spreading of the gospel, these rivals, these competitors. We can continue to keep that word perspective in our minds as we think about this next section, this perspective on life and death. I might do it a little differently this morning than usual. I will start with an application, and then we will look at the Scriptures to help us to see that and then come back to the application. I want to ask you a question, and consider this throughout the the entirety of our study this morning. What is your purpose in life? What is your plan? What are you doing with your life? How do you view your life? Why are you on this earth right now? Is it to get married, have kids, get a job so you can make a lot of money, so you can have nice things? So you can live the good life, so you can enjoy nice things. Maybe you're not greedy, but you just want to have nice things, and you want to be able to enjoy life somehow to contribute to society and do something that helps other people. Maybe you've never really even thought about that. Maybe you've not thought that far ahead. Maybe you're as some who live day to day, and you've never really stopped and put the whole thing into perspective and seen a bigger picture of your life as a whole. So don't, when I ask what are you doing with your life, don't just think about today or what you plan to do someday, but taking a sum of all of the days of your life, however many that may be, what will your life have been about? When you lie on your deathbed, And you think about the days and the weeks and the months and the years that counted for your life. What will it all have been for? Some will live for themselves. They value their life because they value their self. But they think that life is all about doing the things that they want to do. They think that life is about pleasing themselves. They are going to eat right, they're going to exercise because they want to be healthy and they want to stay alive longer. They want to work hard so they can make a lot of money so that they can live comfortably. They can enjoy the finer things in life. They prioritize things such as health and safety, happiness and security. Their mantra through life is, life is all about living as long as you can and as comfortably as you can. There are some who view life a different way. They don't care. They don't view life the same way as this first group of people. They don't really see the purpose of life. And so they kind of just go through life with a carefree attitude. They take foolish risks because what's the point? If it's not adventurous, if my heart's not pounding, then I'm not really living. They might be categorized as those who waste their days and their years doing nothing. Maybe they're not taking foolish risks, but they're simply not doing anything that counts. It's been one thing or another, and it really doesn't matter. And their mantra in life is, life is meaningless, so just do whatever you want, because it doesn't matter anyways. 
But then there's a Christian perspective. Paul's perspective, as we see in this passage here, they see life through different lenses. They value their life to an extent, to a point. They enjoy their life. They recognize the good things that God has given to us in this life, in this world, and they enjoy them. And they, 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 they take care of themselves. They take care of their, their health and their body. They earn uh, money so that they can get the things that they need. And they don't live on just a bare minimum, but they do enjoy some of the nicer things in life. But all of that is shaped with an understanding of the great purpose that they have in life. And this purpose is greater than themselves. It's not the great purpose of getting the most toys, having the most memories, having the most fun. It's better than that. As the Apostle Paul sits in a prison here, he is aware that death could be imminent. As we looked in Acts a little bit last week and the week before, Paul has already been in prison for quite some time. And, and, and it's estimated at least four years that Paul would have been sitting in a prison cell. And if Paul is writing from Rome, which I think he is, Paul is waiting for a trial before Caesar, and a date which has not been given to him at the time of this writing. And so Paul knows that he's waiting. And it could be any day, it could be a year or two from now, Paul will stand before Caesar. And if it does not go well, Paul may lose his life. Paul has already faced death many times. Read the book of Acts, the last few chapters of Acts, and you see how Paul lived a life of adventure. Many times near to the point of death, and even at some times people thinking they had killed him, and yet he was not dead. Now he sits in prison and he's uncertain about the rest of his life. What will life look like going forward from here? When is my life going to end? How is my life going to end? And really, that's, those are three questions that we can be asking ourselves. What is my life going to look like going forward from here? Because none of us knows what tomorrow may bring. None of us knows what the rest of today will bring. It may be that today, one of us will die. We don't like to think about that, and we certainly hope it's not us. But that's one of these days... I had a, a morbid conversation with my children the other day at the dinner table. I said, do you realize that one of these dinners will be our last dinner? <laughs> and you don't know which one it is unless you're in prison. The only, the only people that get to know that this is the last dinner is the guys that are on death row. But everybody else doesn't have that. Uh, I mean, there's a eh, small blessing, I guess. But, um, you know, we are going to die. And we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. We have our preferences but we don't know exactly how that's going to be. But at the same time, Paul knew exactly what lie ahead of him. Paul knew exactly what would be like. Because Paul knew what life was all about. He knew his purpose. And he knew what would happen in his life. And based on what he knew, he expected and hoped certain things to happen. Now, when we talk about hope in the Bible, more often than not, we're not talking about a wish. We're talking about an expectation. Paul is expecting certain things to happen in his life because of the perspective that he has on the purpose of his life. Because he knew his life's purpose, he had a clear perspective and even could rejoice 
sitting in a prison, waiting for a trial that might end in death. Paul could live every day, whether it was in prison or shipwrecked on an island or preaching in a village where he had planted a church. He could live every day with hope and with purpose. So I want to show you through these verses here Paul's perspective on life. Really, it's Paul's perspective on death because death is the last part of life. Paul perceived his purpose for living and how he viewed death and life and his confidence then in these uncertain, perilous times. And based on Paul's perspective, we can see, and we'll show, we'll look at three things this morning that Paul was determined would happen. No matter what. And so in one sense, Paul knew what was going to happen, even though he didn't know what was going to happen. If you can wrap your brain around that. He didn't know what it would look like, but he did know what would happen. Three things that Paul was determined. First of all, Paul says, I am determined that I will be delivered. I will be delivered. If you look at verse number 19 there, Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is guaranteed of this. Paul is certain of this. And he wants them to know, I will be delivered. Now we have to ask the question, what kind of deliverance does Paul have in mind here? That's a question that I've been asking really all week and, and trying to, 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 to figure out what, what the proper answer is. The, there are several different opinions on this, all with good reason or good, good uh, evidence uh, to support that, that belief. Was Paul referring to physical release? Physical deliverance? Was Paul saying, I know that I'm going to be set free from jail? Verses 25 and 26, and then even in chapter 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, Paul does seem to indicate that he will see the Philippians again. And so if Paul is writing from prison, it does seem to indicate that Paul thought, I'm going to be out of prison one day and I'm going to see you. But at the same time, how could Paul know what would happen to him? How could Paul know that, that Caesar would acquit him, that he would be released? How did Paul know that he would not die yet as a martyr? Because we know that he did die eventually as a martyr. Or was Paul speaking of a spiritual deliverance? This is the same word that is often used throughout the New Testament to describe salvation. When someone is saved or, 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 or delivered from, uh, from death unto life, this, that's the word in, in the Greek that is used there. And so some would say that Paul is speaking of a spiritual matter, saying that I, I, I know that I'm going to be saved. I know that I'm going to be delivered from the condemnation of my sin. But... I have to think that Paul was already certain of this. And the way the context reads, it doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be focused on his standing before God. Or is this a judicial, uh, a judicial meaning here? Meaning vindication. I'm going to be delivered. Uh, and what's interesting, we just finished our studies in the book of Job. And you might remember, uh, as we go, if we look back at it, and you can look back at another time, but, a couple things you have to understand. When Paul was writing, he was writing in Greek. But when Paul would refer to an Old Testament verse that we have in Hebrew, translated in English, Paul's Bible was a Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And when Paul would look at the Old Testament, he would read a Greek Old Testament. It was originally in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek because the, the, the most of the people in this day spoke 
Greek. And so when they would read the Hebrew Scriptures, they would read it in Greek. And in Job 13 and verse 16, Job says the exact same line as Paul uses here when he says, uh, this will be uh, verse number uh, 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. Job says those same words in Job 13, 16. Now, if we look at it with an English Bible, we're not going to see it exactly like that because the, our English Bibles are translated from the Hebrew Scriptures. But if you were to have a Greek translation of the Old Testament as Paul did, you would see this exact line there, this will turn out for my salvation. Now, I'll give it just a little bit of context because we don't want to spend all our time going back into Job. But this line from Job came directly after in our scriptures where Job says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And Job, like Paul, did not know that he was going to escape this judgment. Remember, as we go back to all of our studies in Job, he was not guaranteed that all of this was going to be made right. We know that it was made right in the end, and that his health was restored, and his fortune was restored, but Job didn't know that in the moment. And yet, he could say, this will be my deliverance. I take that to mean that Job meant he will be vindicated. He will stand, if he dies, before, and he stands before God, he will not be found guilty of being this wicked sinner that deserves such trouble. Remember, Job's friends thought that all of the trouble coming upon him was because of some great sin he had done, and Job maintains his innocence throughout the book. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And Job makes this statement then, this will be my deliverance. When I stand before God, and and God proves that I didn't do anything wrong. And here, I see Paul echoing the hope that Job has. Paul recognizing, I am, I am in prison, not because I've committed a crime. I'm in prison, not because I've done some wrong thing. I'm in prison suffering righteously and innocently as a servant of God. All the things that have happened to me, as we looked at last week, have, have been to advance the gospel. And Paul could recognize that all of the things that was going on in his life were God's doing, God's working in his life, and he would be delivered. Here's here's how I understand this. I believe that Paul is thinking of an either-or. Whether physical or judicial, Paul is thinking one way or the other, I'm going to be delivered. And and as we get through this, I think this will be a lot more, uh, a lot plainer. Uh, But whether it meant deliverance through his release, or it meant deliverance through his death, Paul was guaranteed a deliverance, and he was confident of these things. In other words, he was leaving the details of his deliverance up to God. He knew it was going to happen, exactly how God was going to work it out. He didn't know, but he did know one thing, he would be delivered. Now, look at what he says there about how he sees this deliverance is going to happen, because this helps to to, to shape how we, I think that Paul saw his deliverance. Because Paul was not looking for human deliverance. Paul was not looking to human means for his deliverance because he says there, in the beginning of verse number 19, that it is through your prayers, the prayers of the Philippian church, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Through these two things, that it will turn out for his deliverance. So Paul here saw this as a spiritual issue. And Paul was not relying on Roman justice or human fairness. Rather, he was looking to God. Our Lord and Savior stood before a 
legal system that was corrupt and that falsely accused him and falsely condemned him for crimes he had not committed. Paul knows that. Paul knows that just because truth is on your side doesn't mean it's going to go your way. And here, I don't think that Paul knew, hey, you know what, Caesar's going to see the truth, and there's no way he can see it any other way, I'm out of here, I'll be back by June. But Paul did know that truth was on his side, and whether it be through life or through death, Paul would be delivered because of the prayers of the people of God, and most specifically, the help of the Holy Spirit of God. And in here, and we won't, we'll just kind of pass over it and, and leave it to our, our consideration for a later time. I do think that here we get a clue as to how we as believers can pray for one another in their moments of trial. As we pray for people, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but we see here that the Philippian church has been praying for Paul, and Paul knows this, and Paul says, I rely on these things, and it will be through these things that I will be delivered. And notice then that the response is we're kind of working our way backward through the verse as verse 18 ends, but kind of goes with verse 19. I will rejoice knowing that he will be delivered because Paul had his hope in God and not in Caesar and not in Roman justice. He would rejoice that his deliverance was guaranteed. The Lord, he says, will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He told, he told that to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.18. And so the rescue that he, that he recognized there was death. That he would be brought into the presence of God. So Paul viewed his prison and even possible martyrdom as confident or with the confident deliverance that he uh, would be delivered by the God he served. That's why we read from Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Three men who did not know if God would actually spare them from the fire, but they said, our God is able to deliver us, and He will. But if He doesn't, we will not bow. Confident of deliverance, even though we don't know all of the details. Secondly, Paul was determined that Christ will be honored. Look at verse number 20. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, he says, I, I eagerly expect this. I, I expect it, I eagerly expect it, and I hope that I will not be at all ashamed, or, or you could say, be put to shame. Now, when we talk about shame in, uh, in, our, in our everyday context, that usually implies some kind of guilt. You are ashamed of what you've done. But when the Bible speaks about guilt, uh, shame, it's more about being disappointed in something, having put your, your trust in something and then it letting you go. You stood on the stool that had a broken leg and you put your confidence in it and it gave way underneath you and you were put to shame. You, your confidence was misplaced. And this is, seems to be what Paul is getting at, even as he writes in other places. Think of what he says in Romans 5. He says that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. The psalmist writes in the 119th Psalm, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. 
So Paul has a hope here. He has a confidence. And he says, it is my eager expectation that I will not be ashamed. But on the, on the other hand, and in the other side of this coin there, in not being ashamed, he believes that there will be boldness here. Instead of shame, Paul expects boldness to exalt and honor Christ. Could it be that he's thinking of his, his continued everyday life in prison, waiting for Caesar? Could it be that he was thinking about his trial before Caesar and hoping that he would be the man that would stand for Christ strong and firm as many countless Christians have done before and after him? When Christ uses the, or when, when Paul uses the word honored, Christ will be honored. It's that, it's that word that means to make big, to make great. So you could say, Christ will be magnified in my body, or Christ will be glorified in my body. Paul's intention and Paul's expectation here was that in him, Christ would be made big. Christ would be made great, whether it be through Paul's life or whether it be through Paul's death. And he goes on to explain that further in the following verses. So he says in verse number 21, a very familiar verse to many of us, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. First of all, to live is Christ. Meaning, Christ is all. Christ is everything to me. He says it uh, a little bit easier in 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 Galatians 2.20. He says these words, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see me? You don't see me. You see Christ because I'm dead. I am crucified with Christ. And he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Essentially, Paul is saying here, Christ owns me. Christ controls me. I am completely his. I eat, sleep, breathe Christ. Life for Paul is not about Paul. Life for Paul is Christ. But on the other side, to die is gain. I lose nothing if I die. Because first of all, my life is not mine. My life is Christ. And if I die, it's gain. This is not recklessness on Paul's part. This is the realization that that all of his life, all of his days are for Christ. And if it be that it most honors Christ for him to die, it's gain. It's gain for the gospel. It's gain for Paul because he gets to be with Christ. As one put it, it is a gain for the proclamation of the gospel and Christ is magnified by the apostle's death as by his life because in both he is dedicated to the service of the Lord. Paul says, if I live, Christ is glorified. If I die as a martyr, Christ is glorified. And that's all that matters. See, Paul's joy was not in staying safe. Paul's joy was not in staying alive. As long as you got your health. No, Paul didn't say that. As long as Christ is glorified, that was Paul's idea. Well, as long as I've got all the things that I need to provide for my family. No, Paul said, as long as I'm glorifying Christ, this must be our attitude as Christians. It does not mean that we are irresponsible fathers or irresponsible parents that we're spending our days as we would have and not planning for the future, not providing for those. Paul is very clear in other passages that if you don't provide for for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. But he is saying that the priority of our life is not about safety and security and health and wealth and happiness. It's about Christ. It's about the glorified Christ in our bodies. 
Sinclair Ferguson wrote this statement, whenever it becomes clear that we count Christ greater than ourselves, then He is honored. This is how we honor Christ daily, counting Him greater than ourselves. I like what Paul says in the next verse. He says there, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's kind of going back and forth between this life and death thing. If I'm going to live in the flesh, great, I'm going to serve Christ. Living in the flesh means Christ. Living in the flesh means fruitful labor for me. Let me just say uh, concerning this, that Paul was determined to spend his life doing things that mattered. Paul was not content to just waste a day away or waste a week away. Didn't matter what age he was, he was doing things every day that mattered. He says, if I'm going to continue living, I'm going to do work that is fruitful. I'm going to do work that counts, work that matters. I begin asking my sons this as we go through. We have dinner conversations, and if I'm not telling them about their last meal, I'm asking them the question, did you do anything today that mattered? Did you do anything today that counts for Christ? doesn't mean necessarily that you spend every moment reading your Bible. Did you spend time loving your family? Did you spend time encouraging another Christian? Did you spend time in prayer? Did you do anything today? Not, not even to go as far as to say, did everything you did today matter? But did you do anything today that really mattered for Christ? Let me encourage you, do something with your life. Do something with the days and the hours and the months that God gives to you. Do something that matters wherever you are and with whatever you have. Finally, Paul says, I will serve Christ's church. He is determined that he will be delivered, that Christ will be honored, and thirdly, that he will serve Christ's church. Now, I remind you, Paul is writing, from the, writing this in prison, knowing he cannot do as he had done before but he can do something to serve the church. And he goes on to say there, in the, in the following verses, convinced of this, in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul saw his life totally and completely at Christ's disposal. And he goes on, I can't really decide which I prefer. If I, if I die, I get to go be with the Lord. That is far better. That is wonderful. That is amazing. But it's necessary for me to stay on for your behalf. And I can't decide which I would, which I would rather have. He writes in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was determined that every day would be something that mattered in service to Christ and to Christ's church. So two things, very quickly. First, he was determined to continue serving for their progress and for their joy in the faith. He was determined to serve Christ's church. And ultimately, through that service to Christ's church, he was determined to serve for Christ's glory. He was determined that he would serve Christ's church and he would serve his Lord. Paul was determined to live for the church's sake and ultimately for Christ's sake. Life for Paul was not about Paul, but about serving Christ. And as long as he was alive on this earth, he would do all he could to serve his Lord and to serve the church. 
of Jesus Christ. Let me ask the question then, is that our attitude? Let me, be, let me ask the question that we began with, how do you view your life? Do you wake up in the morning concerned with bringing honor to Christ? Or has that thought even crossed your mind yet? How am I bringing glory to Christ today? Is this thing that I'm doing right now in any way bringing honor and glory to Christ? Do we desire and expect Christ to be exalted no matter what it means to us personally? I think that most of us would say we would be happy to see Christ honored as long as it meant good things for us. The test comes when Christ will be honored through death when it doesn't mean good things for you, at least from a human perspective. Let me just say that if you have not come to Christ for salvation, you are not bringing honor to Christ. The the, the first great act of honoring Christ is to bow the knee to Him and to repent of sins and turn to Him and believe the Gospel that He has uh, died for sin and paid for sin, and by faith you can be brought into that position where you might then be able to please God. But if those who walk in the flesh cannot please God, those who are in rebellion against Him cannot please God. And so if you are a person who has not uh, been given over to Christ, you've not turned uh, by faith and repentance to Christ, you cannot honor Christ with your body, and therefore the purpose of your life is not being fulfilled. But if we're Christians, we have turned to Christ, and we are truly seeking to honor Christ, let me just ask a few questions. Do you struggle with thoughts of deliverance? When you go through troubles, do you have confidence that you will be delivered, whether in life or in death? And are you satisfied with the fact that God knows best? God knows how those details are going to play out because God is the one who puts those details into place. Some of us struggle with facing troubles, being assured of deliverance. Some of us struggle with wasting time and opportunities in our life. We encourage you again to spend time doing things that matter. Don't look back over a wasted life, squandered opportunities, unused talents. Some of us struggle with being too concerned with the cares of this life. We are to pay attention to things in this life. You know, don't eat junk food. Get some exercise. Do things that are good for your health. But that's not all that there is. Because the healthiest person in this room is going to die one day. It won't matter how healthy or how fat you are. It won't matter how many books you read, or how many doctorates or PhDs or master's degrees or, or how much training, how much, how much clout you have in your company. It won't matter. You're going to die. What will matter is if you honored Christ. Don't prioritize your safety and your comfort and your happiness over service to Christ and honoring Christ. I do believe that there's, there's, there's a way to do both at times. I don't mean that we throw off the cares. Not, we're irresponsible people. No, not at all. I think that we do struggle at times with rearranging those priorities to fit ourselves rather than Christ. Here's the thing. Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy of these things. Christ is worthy of everything because Christ 
is everything to us. If you are a Christian, may we, like Paul, be able to say, Christ will be honored in my body, whether it be in life or in death. Whether things turn out good for me or bad for me, Christ will be honored. I will rejoice knowing that I have been delivered and I will be delivered. And I will gladly serve my Lord with my whole self, with my days, with my talents, with my body, with my weakness, with my illness, with my opportunities, whatever it may be, I will serve. Let me just finish by quoting the words of our Lord from Luke 9. Jesus said, if anyone would come up after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Let's pray together. As we sit and respond to the Word this morning, let us not just casually let these words drop, but may they not only penetrate our ears, but into our hearts. And I wonder if you might Pray for bold determination to honor Christ in your body. Pray for grace to accept whatever comes in this life so long as Christ is glorified in it. Pray for the knowledge that you will be delivered however that may come. Maybe we need to confess that self has been too high on the priority list and that Christ needs to be given the preeminence in our lives. Whatever it may be, may we be responsive to the Word of God as it has been spoken to us. Father in Heaven, we thank You. Your words. Thank You for these instructions, for these reminders. For the promise of deliverance. For the, the reminders daily that we have a God who will be honored. But I don't think that Paul was thinking that it was up to him to honor you in, in his body and death. I think he recognized that you will do these things and he wanted to get on board with that. Help us then to get on that side of that desire of wanting to see you do what you have already determined you will do. To seek your glory. If that means good things for us, wealth and cars and happiness and family and healthy lives, then so be it. And praise you. But if it means suffering, death, it means loss, pain and heartache, so be it. As we sing in a little bit, all glory be to Christ. May you be honored in all that is done in our lives, both in this moment and in the moments that you give us for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.